If somebody could get me a uh, one another one of those musical stands right here, and uh, I will slowly recover. I'm a bit frustrated not to get that going. And they told me you were going to start at uh, uh, 10 o'clock, and you were going to have prayer at 9:30. And I imagine this kind of little quiet prayer going on, and, uh, me setting up the computer, no problems. And uh, first of all, it was real noisy in here. You can adjust all that, can't you? I, um, I'm always, I, by the way, I enjoy doing um, uh, these kinds of things. I, and I want to compliment Brother Martin and Brother Schweitzer, whoever's been involved in the, uh, I heard some names, I didn't catch them all, but uh, I think it's a wonderful thing to provide a place for preachers, ministers, and their wives to come and uh, I have to say, I know I have to say this very carefully, but sometimes we come uh, together and we're always kind of in camp meeting atmospheres and we're kind of pumped and hyped and so forth. That's okay. That's good. That's, that's right. But it's wonderful, I think, to have some uh, times like this when we can come together to really talk about what we do, our profession, our work. And hopefully uh, we can address some things in meetings like this that obviously you can't address in uh, camp meetings, or you can't address, uh, can't address it in general, or district conferences, or general conferences for that matter as well. So I think it's a good thing. So uh, you're blessed, I believe, to have these kinds of things, and then to have this wonderful turnout uh, during a, a day of uh, tornadoes, and right before Mother's Day, that's a tornado in and of itself, and that's all tomorrow. And uh, can you believe this? And all of you are together. And uh, that is just an amazing thing. And I'm deeply humbled and honored uh, to be uh, asked to be here on the very first of your Oklahoma Ministers Institute. And uh, I, I, uh, it doesn't matter if I just totally bomb and mess up, I still will get the distinction of being the first one to ever come and bomb. And so here, here we'll have a good time. So we can't lose, right? To be the first at something. So I do believe that if we'll pray, and we have prayed, and the, just keep our minds on the Lord, that the Holy Ghost will help us. Now, I also have to say something else. This is for me, so you bear with me. I don't consider myself uh, an expert on anything, and I, I'm always a bit uh, hesitant as well as somewhat embarrassed to talk to preachers about their uh, work. And uh, so I'm not, I've not come to give you uh, any particular advice necessarily. I've just come to give you an opinion. And uh, this is my opinion. It doesn't mean it's better than your opinion. And I don't think anyone has uh, a, an absolute situation exactly like somebody else's situation. So sometimes you'll hear uh, people preaching and they'll speak about this or that. And uh, it's in the context perhaps of their own, uh, their own understanding. Well, everything in a sense is in the context of our own understanding. So uh, you can take do you feel this way like if you buy a book for an example and you get one good line out of the book it's worth the $24 or I mean one good one good thought sometimes is it's worth driving halfway across the world to get one good thought it can be revolutionary so my objective is to give you one or two hopefully I can get maybe to three but even one or two just things 
a set that you can kind of carry home and uh, and be benefited by, um, I think it'd be worthwhile. I paid uh, $795 to go to a seminar one time at the Grand Plaza Hotel in Grand Rapids, Michigan, taught by uh, a corporate leader. He, he had a book out a few years ago. His name's escaping me at the moment. But they made envelopes and other kinds of specific paper products. And uh, so he was doing a seminar and somebody said, "You, uh, some businessman in the community invited me. I thought at first he was going to pay my way, but I found out he wasn't. And it was one of those situations where, what do you do? And uh, so you're there in line as you just pay your 795 What did this cost, by the way? 20 bucks, I understand. So, so you know, quit your griping. I uh, $795. 20 bucks sounds like a deal to me. And you get lunch with that. You get lunch with that? My goodness, you're going to lose money on this thing. Uh, so $795. Now, I got one thing out of that. One thing. There's only one thing I can remember. I, I did take notes. I got one thing. And you know that one thing is with me today. And I would say it's worth a lot more than $795. Now, I'm not going to tell you what it is for 20 bucks. So if we could get the offering pens here and, uh, you know, I paid 700. It's kind of like, a, 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 you know, one of those illusionists, you know, you pay to learn how to do something. I was with uh, Jeff Arnold. We were in a restaurant and he was, uh, had the waitress was up there and uh, uh, we were impressed because he was calling off her license plate number and stuff like that, which is a trick that... And so, uh, at the end of it, we said, man, it's amazing that you could just call this girl over there and, uh, and give her her license, uh, her driver's license number. Like, and, and he said, you know, that trick cost me $2,500 learn how to do that. And you can be sure he wasn't going to tell you how he did it. So, but uh, uh, not just because you're nice people and because you, you know, you been so sweet to me. I'll go ahead and tell you what it was. $795 what it cost me, but I'm going to give it away here for free. And it's helped me in my, it's helped me out there in the business world. It's helped me, uh, it's helped me in my life. This is for me, maybe not for you, but this gentleman, he said, he said, you know, sometimes you, you get upset at your staff and you get upset at people and you get upset at uh, folks you're trying to do business with. Of course, we were in a business setting. He said, I want to give you a little something that if you hold on to it, it will help you understand people and not be so angry at people. Now, let me tell you, anger against people is not just something that people experience in the world. It's possible for a pastor and his wife to become frustrated with their own people. And, and even anger can develop in your heart against people because you're so frustrated with people. Sometimes people are demanding. Sometimes they're not very appreciative. Sometimes you pour a lot into people and you don't get much back. And the people are so fickled in their loyalty and affection. You know, it's kind of like when the evangelist comes, you know, and he preaches for two or three nights and then some old lady gets up and says, I have never in all my life heard such preaching. As... And you've been there 30 years. And I'm, I mean, does that hurt or what? It's like, I guarantee you one thing, that evangelist is never coming back. I asked If I get an evangelist at my church and he does really well, I said, you preach good, but this is your last time you're ever going to be here. 
you know, we can only handle so much. And, and you got it? I wonder what the problem was. You think it's this, it must be this thing right here. Okay. I could, I'll just test and see if uh, the, if you want to click on that one down in the lower left-hand corner right there. Yeah. Yeah, that one. Now we'll pause here for a technical moment to see. Are you going to run that, Brother Schweitzer, uh, back there? Are you a man that can be trusted? I don't even know. By the way, this is an interesting thing i got to tell you. This is a true story. I downloaded something on the Internet from a ministry page from Trinity uh, Trinity uh, Ministries, which is, has nothing to do with Trinity TBN. And it was, uh, and the title of it was X-Rated Bible Study. And somebody had called me and said, you need to get this. It was a man talking to his staff, and it was X-rated in the sense that he was being very candid with his staff, and he called it an X-rated Bible study. So I was in Maine, and this screen popped up, and I had that particular sermon on the on the desktop screen, you know? So when it came up, there it was, and, and it was over to the side, and when you turn this on, it kind of like blows up, and it just went the whole list over there, X-rated Bible study. And I made it clear to them, you're not going to hear that, that's for sure. Now, uh, you'll have to click that again now that you're into that particular program, so try it again and it should come up. Anyway, while he's uh, messing around with that, uh, we come now to this thing that I learned for 790. Have I gotten to that yet? The suspense is building. Now when you hear this, you're going to say, that's stupid. Well, that's kind of what I thought. No, I didn't think that. I don't know exactly. But anyway, he said, always remember this about people. People are never against you. They are just for themselves. And I wrote that down, and it has, you know, I don't think you can apply that to absolutely every situation because you will meet maybe one or two selfless people in your life. But you won't meet very many because most people are kind of for themselves. Think about that when you go into a business deal. And always remember that when you're dealing with people. It isn't that they're against you. They're not trying to hurt you altogether. They just have some sense of their own priority. They have some sense of their own territory. And they're basically just trying to protect themselves. And that can give you a whole different view about people. Even when you're preaching, you know, people are basically trying to protect themselves. People protect themselves from bad sermons. Uh, There's ways of shutting down. Uh, Or there's just sometimes people say amen, just hoping that an amen will help the preacher do better. They don't really care if he does good or bad. It's just that if he does real bad, it's painful for them. So most people want you to succeed. Have you found that out? Most people want you to succeed in church. And, uh, but, but... the, the, the thing called uh, the protection of the territory and self-interest is a very dominant human emotion. And just apply that little principle as you move around. And always remember, when you're with people, they're not always against you. They're just for themselves. You want me to take you through that? Just click OK there, and uh, we'll see what happens. And we might be able to get to this. And there we are. Now, if you will go down in the left-hand corner, 
right, that little thing right there that's a screen and top. Nope. Yeah, you got to kind of get on that without. Nope. The, the little last one, it looks like a little screen. Clear over to the right. There's four little things there, right there. Click that. Oh, it's a miracle. This is why we're going to talk about getting things done. And this little lesson that we're going to deal with today is about power. Everybody say power. And uh, I'm going to give you a definition for power. Now let's just check. We'll do one more little uh, check here and then we'll just give it up if it either works or it doesn't work. And I'll see. I doubt if we'll. You just kind of stay with me, okay? And uh, we'll work that way. And that way I won't have to worry about that. Did you find that in the book? Under the third tab? Last night when the tornado came through, I didn't lose anything except my brains. It's amazing how a tornado could just come right so close and just take out one little thing like my brains. My body's here, my brain is not here. We're going to talk about uh, a power, we're going to talk about authority. Now power and authority are the elements that preachers work with. Would you agree? I mean you have a position of oversight with people. Now. I want to disqualify this day because I'm going to be talking to you for about two and a half hours. I know that's a long time for one person. We'll, we'll try to use a little humor and take some breaks. But I want to try to be as candid as I possibly can. And I'm going to say things to you maybe I wouldn't say uh, outside of a, a group of ministers. But we need, I don't think this day will be very worthwhile to you unless I am very candid with you, unless I'm really straight out. So I don't want to be offensive, but we're not here trying to, we're not, have, we're not here for a revival today, is that right? We're just here to talk about our work. And ministers are given oversight, they're given authority, and this authority is in a sense power. Now we like to quote the scripture, obey them that have rule over you, for they watch for your soul. And we know that God has set certain offices in the church, uh, pastors and apostles and, and uh, ministers and so forth, and evangelists for the perfecting of the saints. And they're to have oversight of the church. So we are at the church level dealing with power. We are dealing with authority. Now once you begin to touch anything connected with power, there are two things that can go wrong real 
there are more things, but two primary things that can go wrong. Everybody say primary things. How many believe we got something to learn? We always got something to learn. And we need to learn about authority and power, I think. We need to think about it. You're in a position, when someone comes into your office, you're in a position of power. You're in a position of authority. Uh, all of us have had people who've been afraid to talk to us because we're the pastor. They didn't want to come in and talk to the pastor. Other people sometimes are uh, just won't come at all because of authority. They're so adverse to authority. You can have people in your church that maybe have never engaged you at all. I had a person come into my office recently that uh, whose membership at Calvary goes clear back to uh, the days when Brother Urshan was uh, very, very young. And this person said to me, seems so incredulous to me, but they said that in all the years that I've come to Calvary, I've never talked to the pastor. It was the first time they had ever talked to the pastor in I don't know how many years. Well, that seems pretty hard to believe, but there are some people who just because you are the pastor, because you are in a position of authority, really are not too interested in talking to you. There are two things that can go wrong. This is not going to be in your notes. I'd like for you to just write these down. First of all, there can be the abuse of power. The abuse of power. If you have power, wherever there's power, there's people that's going to abuse the power. Um, and then secondly, the second thing that can go wrong with a power is the effect of power. The effect of power on the person in authority. The person holding the power can be affected by the power itself. Uh, you cannot be in a position without any kind of position of authority and power, such as a minister, a pastor, a preacher, or some kind of district office, without that office, power, position having effect on you. So you have to guard against the abuse of power, you have to make sure you use power properly, and you have to make sure you use your authority properly, and then you have to make sure that you are monitoring, everybody say monitoring, you're monitoring the effect that power has on your own life. We're going to get to this hopefully toward the end of the day, uh, a little shorter lesson to kind of finish the day about some of the things that can go wrong in the ministry and what we need to guard against. So we are in a position of power. Now, Brother Schweitzer, if you, do you have the, like the notebook there? Are you going to be helping me? So that means you've got to pay attention. The way I'm reading this right now, you are not paying attention. And I, I have got to have your cooperation here. I would like to exercise some power over you and tell you to go to the next slide. You should have already been there because we're talking about this. Now, these slides are animated, so you'll have to just animate them until they... No, just just touch uh, the bar. Just touch something. Now, do you see the picture? That, let me kind of help you here. See, the picture in the notebook is ultimately the way the slide is going to look. You got that? So, now, at this point, all you got is the starburst, right? Oh, what well, originally you had the starburst. All right, you're doing better. Ministers, and, and, and just in a moment, I'm getting ready to go to the third slide. So you need to be slightly ahead of me because I'm going to go to the next point. All right, pretty soon. 
Ministers are given oversight. Let's let's say that this oversight, say it with me. Now, Brother Schweitzer and I are friends. You're okay, right? He's, he's okay. He's not coming back to the next session, but he's okay. Ministers are given oversight. This is what youth uh, and I know as power. Now, I want to give you a special definition for power that I found uh, many years ago that I've been using as kind of my paradigm for understanding power in my own life. And so I want to give you this definition, which is on slide. And we're going to define power in a very specific way. Power for the purpose of this discussion. Now, this is not the full uh, the full uh, definition for power. Obviously, this is not all there is to power. But for our discussion today, what we're going to try to do is define power and figure out how power and authority works in the church and how you can use power. If you have power, don't you want to use it? You want to use your power effectively. You don't want to abuse people with your power. You've got to monitor the effect that power has on you. But you do want to use your authority. It's a terrible thing to have authority and not use authority. Uh, if something should go wrong, let's just say I got completely out of control in some way, or something went wrong, any element could go wrong here. Brother Martin is our district superintendent. Now, you, this would either be conscious or unconscious, but this would happen. Let's just, uh, for a moment, suppose that I got really out of control. Let's, let's suppose I started teaching something that to the apostolic mind was a clear false doctrine. I just kept getting into it. You would cut me a little slack at first, right? Well, maybe I didn't understand it. But let's just say I pressed, I kept pressing, and it became clear that I was off message, I was off base, and I'm pressing it, and I'm making it really strong, and I'm really, it's just everybody in the room, you know, it's like one of those moments where cold water just comes over the room. What do you start doing at that moment, consciously or unconsciously, is this. You start turning your attention, consciously or unconsciously, to Brother Martin. And you start thinking, Brother Martin ought to do something. Why? Because he has the power. You don't have the power. He's the district superintendent. He invited me here. He's basically responsible for what happens here. And even though we don't anticipate maybe that power being exercised in that way, even if we had a crisis, a physical crisis in the building, he, he other people may help, but Essentially, if Brother Martin stood and said, do this, do that, all of us would feel a, an inclination to respond immediately to Brother Martin because he's in a position of power. Now, suppose he didn't use that power, and I just kept going on, and, and uh, he just kind of bent his head down. You would be saying to your wife, you'd be very disappointed. Now, make no mistake about it, when people put you in a position of power, they want you to exercise that power. They want you to exercise that power. They don't want you to abuse it. They don't want you to take advantage of that power, but they do want you to use that power. So I'm going to give you one, not the only one, but one very powerful way, meaningful way, that we can use our power in a positive sense. And this is a wonderful definition, and I am indebted to the work of Robert Dylan Scheiber, not Scheibner, who is a businessman, 
and he writes a lot of books on the subject of investing mostly. He defined power this way. He said it's the ability to get things done, usually through other people. Now, for the last 30 years of my life, I have incorporated that definition into my thinking. If I have any position of power, I'm a pastor or I'm working in any kind of particular official position in the organization, I remind myself that power is the ability to get things done through people. Suppose I said for you, I said, you know, this year at, this is an extreme example, but I said this year I want you to be the trash man and pick up the trash. You got a pickup truck, bring it down and keep the trash picked up off the campground. And when you get that done, then I want you to paint the uh, chicken coop out to uh, the other. That would mean absolutely nothing to this man. But if Brother Martin said for him to bring his pickup truck and to help with the trash detail, then we have power calling upon another person to help. So that is the definition that we're going to use today to get things done. Sometimes bad things, sometimes difficult things. But power, you want to exercise power. Let's again suppose we had some situation, something needed to be done, and we're saying, why why doesn't the pastor get this done? Why doesn't he step up and get this done? Why doesn't he get this grass mode? Why doesn't he take care of this situation we got uh, in the in the cafeteria? It's similar to the situation that developed in Acts. You remember when the uh, the Grecians were having trouble with the Jews, and the apostles had to appoint certain men to administrate the daily food operation because people were getting out of control. They had to put leadership in there to get things done. So we're going to use this definition, the ability to get things done, and it's usually through other people. You want to have a revolutionary moment in your ministry is to decide that you are going to use your power and your authority to get things done. And you can't get things done really until you learn to use people. Now use people is not the same as abusing people or taking advantage of people but it means how to get people on your team and to incorporate people. For me personally, the really turning point in our ministry was when Sister Mooney and I, we used to go up to a place uh, that was provided, there was, uh, I alluded to this hotel earlier and that's the Grand uh, Am Hotel in Grand Rapids when I lived in Michigan for many, many years. And they had on the top floor the uh, the Amway boys. You know, I uh, I can't think of their names at the moment. Uh, from Ada, Michigan, very wealthy, of course, and they are very pro-Christian reform. Uh, so they had a kind of a Christian base for their ministry and so forth. And they built this huge hotel, which was at the time it was rated as a four or five star hotel. I think it's a bit disrepair at the moment, but. It was a magnificent place. It's still the dominating uh, hotel in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and dominates the skyline. And uh, uh, they built on the top floor of that hotel, they built a huge U-shaped set of suites, and it had a big center thing in there. And uh, it was uh, a wonder, wonder, wonderful place. And around the uh, center Uh, area was a huge set of suites and ministers could rent those suites 
through their church, they could rent those suites for, I think it was $50 a day, as I recall. And they brought newspapers in from all over the world. You had, it was completely, the uh, Amway Corporation would provide food for you. They provide snacks for you. And you could retreat there for up to three days. You could pay and stay a little bit longer. And every year, Sister Mooney and I would go, and we would take advantage of that hospitality and go up there and stay for three days. And they had a big a, a, a theological library up there. They had, uh, it was up a uh, big sky thing, and you could look out over the city. It was wonderful. And uh, you could rent it for a certain number of days. Many preachers did that. And it was kind of their way of thanking God for the impact of preachers on their lives in this wonderful place that they put at the top of the hotel. No one else could stay up there. And it was pretty special. Well, we would stay up there, and I remember when we were uh, struggling with our church, we decided to make a shift in the way we were pastoring the church. Now, I'm here to talk to you about philosophy. I'm here to talk to you not so much about how to run a bus ministry. or We're, we're going to talk about philosophical things. Is that all right? Things that have to do with thinking. Because, uh, you know, how do you do this? How do you run a bake sale? You can. There's a lot of different ways to do that. That's not what we're here for in these three hours. Is that okay? So we had a shift in thinking. And here's what we determined to do. We were going to stop doing everything in the church. And we were going to start training people. Now, we, it wasn't that we had never heard this. It wasn't like we didn't know that this was an important thing to do. We just never had committed to it. See, there's a difference kind of knowing what you ought to do and really committing to do what you ought to do. So it was up in that hotel that our lives not only changed our church in Muskegon, Michigan, but it changed our lives forever. And it prepared us for what God was getting us ready to do that we're involved in now. We could not operate now had we not made that mental shift back in the 70s. Are you with me? You don't know what mental shift you might make in the next three hours that could affect your life 25 years from now. And if you don't make that mental shift, you won't get to where God really wants you to be, in my opinion. So those are critical things. And so we made that shift. All right, we're going to go back and we're going to start training people. And we did that, of course. And as I like to think of it in my own life, the rest is history because my life took on a tremendous change. First of all, I stopped dealing with money. Uh, I, I slid the uh, the entire money aspect of my life across the table. I gave it to people who were in charge of money, who knew how to uh, to take care of money. The young, she's not so young now, but at the time she was a very young lady. She works, has still worked for us for 35 years. She's now a CPA. She handles, she's the chief executive officer at Calvary Tabernacle, runs the whole operation. We sent her to school. We trained her. We invested in her. I have not written a check in 30-some years. Not personal, not at the church at any level. It's the most liberating thing I ever did. I would have to call if I wanted to buy a major purchase debt. I'd have to call to figure out if I got enough money to do that. I don't know. I hope so. Maybe I won't have any when I get to retirement. I don't know. I, maybe she's she did buy a new house recently. Maybe I need to look into it. It was revolutionary, and that was, we started working, training people, and of course, it changed our lives. Getting things done through people 
is how we're going to define power. And you must uh, be committed to doing that, otherwise you will not get it done. So we're going to understand too that power without a goal, however, is completely meaningless. If you do not have some objective to using your power, here we were in that hotel and we said, I think we want to go back home and we want to use Brother Schweitzer. Let's just say this, uh, at the bottom of number three, you see power without a goal or application is what? Meaningless. It's not somewhat meaningless, it's absolutely meaningless. In that little room up there, reading and praying and thinking, we decided that we were going to use our power to train people, to get people close to us. Now, we didn't have a lot of people that could do a lot of things. So we had to start really training them and helping them to adopt the, the philosophies that we had and, and help them to adopt the vision and help them to adopt the things that we wanted to accomplish. And, and it wasn't like we set people down and said, uh, okay, we're going to train all you people. It, it was more like one person at a time and a very slow process. You can't do it that way. I remember one time organizing a magazine and we put the magazine, uh, we, every element that we would need to run this magazine, including what it would take to, who was gonna buy the paper. I put all those people in the room on one night and tried to organize the magazine in one setting and gave out all the jobs and all the descriptions. It was the biggest chaos mess you ever saw in your life. And so I figured out, you can't really do that. So we took one or two people and began to work with them. And it was a tremendous blessing for us. And it will be, I would like to say, a blessing for you. So we're going to have operating in the now. We're going to figure out how to get things together. Everything God has for you is in the future. You can't go back. Turn to somebody and say you can't go back. You have to figure out how to operate right now. What am I going to do now? There's some mistakes you've made you can't go back and fix. You've got to just change and say, I'm going to leave. The Apostle Paul emphasized this, forgetting those things which are behind. You press forward. So the future, of course, is connected with the now. So if I'm going to operate in the now, I'm operating in a kind of a nowness attitude because I want to have a future that is different than I've been experiencing to this point. So I take now, I take today, and I start making the changes that affect the future. The now is now. The past is the past. The now is now. But the now can affect the future. To put it in a more simple term, you can take a seed this time of year, plant it in the soil, and take care of it through the summer, and in the fall, you can have a harvest. That's not hard to figure out, is it? The same is true in church work. The same is true in evangelism. The same is true in your marriage. You can start planting the seeds right now that will revolutionize your life in the future. How many want a brighter future? I do. I got things I want to accomplish. I've got to figure out, now God has given me something. I have some stuff in my hand right now. I'm a pastor right now. How many pastors do we have in here? All right, good. See, some people say, I'm going to become a great pastor when I get a great church. Maybe you need to be a great pastor 
now and God might give you even greater victories in the future. Uh, when are you going to preach great sermons? Preach them now. Don't, uh, don't hold anything. One uh, good man of God told me one time, said, if you have a great sermon and you feel like God has given it to you and you get to church on Sunday night and there's only 14 people there, preach your sermon anyway. Don't say, well, I think I'll save this great thought for next week. Don't do that. Because the more you give out, the more God is going to give you. Always envision that place is full. Always begin to think, i got to do my very, very best now. When I was in Muskegon, Michigan, I had a lot more time. And I put together long, long Bible studies. I mean, very elaborate Bible studies. I don't have time to do that now. But I had these wonderful Bible studies. I put together an institute that we operated on Tuesday night. We went through the entire Bible, uh, book by book, years of work, huge uh, stacks of notes and all that kind of stuff. And I had maybe seven or eight people. Mickey used to tell me, how come you labor so hard for those? And three of the people that were in that, uh, what we called at that time, advanced Bible classes, there was no way they were going to advance. There's three ladies in there whose elevators didn't even go to the top. And here I'm putting together these like really tough Bible studies and all kinds of slides and everything, you know, and working at it and big books, notebooks and everything. And my little school, my little uh, advanced Bible classes never grew. Nobody ever came. But do you know what material I use today teaching at Indiana Bible College? Those huge volumes of material that I put together 25 years ago. Gave it my best. Never looked back. I ministered to those people. That's the way I think you have to do. You have to minister and give your best right where you are because everything you do today is preparing something great for you in the future. Put your hands together if you can receive that. We waste time talking about the future if we don't understand that what we do today builds the future. Do you believe that? You just wait. Don't talk about the future unless you're doing something now to prepare for the future. And what I'm suggesting in this lesson is that you begin to say, I'm going to start using my power now to prepare for the future. I'm going to start using my position as pastor to get ready for tremendous revival in my church. And I'm going to start training people. Because remember, what is our definition for power today? It's getting things done, usually, through other people. You can't, you can't run a church by yourself. I was at a church uh, not, well, not too long ago in which the pastor passed out the songbooks went back and adjusted the air conditioner three or four times, took up the offering, made the announcements, did everything that went on. I know it's, it was like a skit. My wife told me later, said, I really thought we were watching a skit. It was that funny. And the man would, he led the songs, he passed out the song. So here's church starting and the pastor's passing, praise the Lord, his song book. And I thought, well, okay, that's kind of a nice thing. Pastor passing out the songbooks and greeting people. I was buying in, you know. I was thinking, I may try that at Calvary. Pass out the songbooks. You know, kind of. Then, uh, then 
uh, he goes up and leads the songs. And I'm thinking, well, uh, that's not so bad. Maybe he just wanted to lead the songs. And then he walked over to the air conditioner two or three times and adjusted that. And he said, finally said it's time to take up the offering. And he fumbled around and found the offering pans. I kept waiting for the ushers to come up. And uh, he, he said, he just passed the, he had two of them, pass it over here, pass it over there, pass it over there. Took the thing and I thought, you know, how would you feel if you went to a church like that? You know what happens in a church like that? You just keep reducing the mentality of your, I mean, you lose the smart people. <laughs> you, you just do that for a while and you'll have a church full of dingbats. Because anybody that's got any brains at all are going to say, you want to do it all, baby. You can do it all. I'm out of here. That's what my wife says to me when she's trying to do something and I try to help her. She says, you want to do this? Do it. If I'm going to do it, keep your mouth shut and leave me alone. So, you know, this whole human... But this man's church, he's a, he's not a bad person. He's a good man. I respect him a lot. He's, he... Uh, he has a lot going for him. He's a hard worker in many ways. But he'll never build a church, I'm sad to say. I don't think he'll ever build a church until he learns how to build people. And so he's got to do some things in the now that really prepare and build for the future. Now let's see how uh, power works. How does this work in real life? First of all, all power has to be by consent by consent. You simply cannot impose power on people. Now, there is a level that power can operate in using the techniques of fear and using the techniques of pressure, as we'll talk about a little bit later, where you can, at least for a while, you can, uh, you can impose your will on people, but ultimately that breaks down. Ultimately, that destroys people and will destroy you. It is true that people will follow a despot. It is true that people will uh, give themselves over to a person sometimes who is a fear monger. And they will get trapped in a system like that and sometimes stay with it for a long time. But usually, as we're going to see, those people are not real content. And many times those people will, it will backfire. And the same people that helped erect your statue will be the same people that will tear your statue down, as we saw in Iraq. So you have to be very careful about this. So everybody say power is by consent. It has to be democratic. Everybody say democratic. It has to be pure. It has to be vital. Now, it, in other words, power has to work. It has to be... Uh, vital in the sense that it is uh, it is important it's, you've got to make people feel like that your leadership is important that you're not just trying to rule over them but that you're trying to help lead them somewhere trying to get you somewhere we're trying to get somewhere together and so that has to be communicated it doesn't always you, you you can't always communicate it verbally by saying I'm in control sit down shut up you can't I would now I feel like doing that so I want to tell you, I even go past that. Sometimes it's a good thing I don't have a two-before handy on certain occasions because we all, if you have power, there's always a tendency to want to exercise that kind of extreme thing. The problem is it doesn't work. 
long term. It may work short term, but it won't work long term. So it has to be democratic, has to be pure, it has to be vital. And as Abraham Lincoln said, no man is good enough to govern another man except by consent. And I don't see why a preacher can't adopt that philosophically, because you're not really in control of people just because they may cow down to you or because they sit down and don't say anything. That doesn't mean you're in control. Matter of fact, it could mean you're in trouble. Because, you know, just like a tornado, right before it hits, don't don't say walk out and say, well, it's really still. I mean, it must have passed over. No, it's getting ready to knock your socks off. That's what it's getting ready to do. So consent, we're going to say, works only through relationships. It does not work in isolation. So if I'm going to have consent, if I'm going to have power, and that power comes through consent, then what I'm really asking people to do is give me permission to lead them. Give me permission to to work with them, to give them me permission to, to be in charge, in a sense. You can't take it, you can't grab it. So I have to build then something called relationships. It does not work in isolation. Somebody said to me, and this is just the thing, this is just me, you don't, you can throw this out, but if, I think in, particularly if you're building a church from scratch and you see really successful young men doing this today, one of the elements you have to bring into a new church is fellowship, lots of fellowship. It's, it's how many know that's biblical? They went from house to house breaking bread. They had fellowship. They had good fellowship. And fellowship is, is a different dynamic when church gets up to three, four hundred. Maybe it's a different dynamic. But a small church, particularly, is a wonderful time in those growing years when you're very, you're in infant stage to develop wonderful fellowship with your people. And that's through that fellowship that you develop relationship. Through those relationships, you get to consent and you can begin to work with people. If you shut people out in the area of fellowship, it will be very hard to get them to the place where they'll consent. They gotta know you a little bit without knowing you too much. They have to trust you, is that right? So it does not work in isolation. You have some preachers that have the star mentality, you know? They have this fantasy that they are the entertainment for the night. And so they come in a little late, they come, you know, I'm surprised that there's not more curtains in some churches and spotlights and, you know, uh, 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 disco balls. And, and all of a sudden, a pastor's coming out. Praise the Lord! And then when you're all finished, you know, you go behind the, go behind the stage and, and uh, uh, you know, there's a limo waiting for you out uh, as you escape through the prayer room and takes you down to the steakhouse. Uh, not a good way to do that. Now, here's the thing about some of those extreme things. Did you know you can actually attract a certain type of person to that? And I, I may not get to it uh, in this session, in these sessions today, but there are there is a certain type of person through the element of transference who wants to be like you, and they'll hang out with you, and it's a very uh, they'll hang out with even bad people because they want the power of a bad person. And so it gets very, very sick up here in the head. But we're not trying to build a sick operation. We want an operation that works. And it'll work after you're gone. So it has to be through relationship. It does not work in isolation. And power apart from consent is control. If you don't have consent, then you're dealing with something called control. And when power 
seeks to control, it is about abuse. And it is abusive. So we don't want to just have power. We want to have consent. We want to be able to have people. Remember, we're trying to get things done. How are we trying to get it done? Through people. We can't, then we have to have relationships. We need their consent. Relationship means fellowship. It means working with people. It means pouring yourself into people. Jesus was a rabbinical teacher. He walked with the disciples. He talked with them. He ate with them. He shared uh, intimate moments with them. Am I right? He wasn't this superstar kind of personality that just That's what I'm challenging all of us to do today, to get into this relationship. Because when we start trying to uh, uh, have power with no consent, then it becomes very, very abusive. Can I get a witness? And control, watch, this is one of those areas where you have to watch yourself. Control can become obsessive. It's like, have you ever exercised, uh, maybe you haven't, uh, but I'll tell you a horrible story in my life. Have you ever exercised kind of violence and got a positive results from it and you felt pretty good about it? Maybe that would be a question you shouldn't answer, I think. I was in a Kmart store and there was, um, it was Christmas, uh, and uh, there was this man who was wanting to check out. He was in a hurry, he had a pair of gloves, and it was a long line. And he got up, finally got to the line. We had already checked out. We were on our way out of the store. The man gets up there. One of those situations where the price is not on the glove. So the lady was having to call for a price check. And it was busy. The store was busy. It's Christmas time. Couldn't get anyone to answer the phone. And she's up there. And so he's frustrated. He wants to check out. This man goes into a rage. And he begins to curse this girl. He begins to say, I can't believe you don't have a price. And he was using the foulest, nastiest language. And she said, sir, I'm trying. I'm doing my best. I have to. I don't know the price. Well, make up the price. On and on and on. And so I'm, it's so loud and so volatile that I just stood there. And I'm just watching this. And finally, they got the price. They checked the man out. He threw the money down. And uh, I could see people were running to try. I mean, this was extreme. It was extreme. The man was in here, this girl's face. I thought he was going to reach across the counter and really get her. It was that bad. They finally got him checked out. He's getting to the edge of the store, the big glass doors. He turns and he says, I'm terrified. And he just starts screaming and hollering. And he's cursing using all kinds of filthy words you could put in the place. It was just terrible. And... All of a sudden, there just something came over me. Now, I am not a violent person. I've never done this in my life. But I was like, my wife was horrified as we rehearsed this later. I was like shot out of a cannon. And I went up to that man and I said, if you don't shut your mouth, I'm going to smash your head like a pimple. (laughs) And I want you to know, this is a true story. That man's face went as white as my shirt. He just, my God. And he just backed up. Here's this 250-pound man going, I'm going to smash you! And I'm screaming just like that. I'm going to smash you! And Mickey is going, oh my God! Oh my God! She had never seen this happen before. And that guy, that guy was so frightened that he walked, he just ran out of the store. 
And all of a sudden, cashiers and customers, everybody started going, and I'm going, hey, hey, that works, baby. I'm gonna try that Sunday night. Well, control can become obsessive. Now, have you ever seen people who know how to kind of throw their weight around? We, and we call them, in school we call them bullies. And that behavior becomes obsessive behavior. Now you have the same thing can happen in church. This is why you, have, you do have power, but you have to guard yourself. You have to understand how it works. Is this all right? Because we're at a minister's meeting here, right? So we want to be careful that we don't get into an obsessive behavior. C control may become the objective. This is, I believe, where revival begins to fade into the mucky world of the bazaar. And it goes, this is where churches go haywire, right here. And I'm pausing because I want you to catch this. We have to have power. We're given a power scripturally. We have rule over the church. We have a sense of authority, divinely commissioned. We're the ambassadors of Jesus Christ. But that power should have an objective. If it has no objective, it's no good. The objective is to use your power to get something done. I mean, what's hard about that? I want to get something done. I don't want to just hold the office. I don't want to just say, I'm a pastor. Y'all know that. I'm a pastor. Ain't that good? And somebody says, what are you going to do? I don't know. I'm just a pastor. It's like, you know, when you're first elected pastor, it's like waking up and saying, oh, my goodness, what do I do now? I'm the pastor. So it, it, you, you get the objectives. You start figuring out that you have to work through people. But if you're not very, very sensitive, you will begin to allow control to become obsessive. And then controlling people, watch this, watch this, becomes your objective. It becomes what you're all about. I just want to control people. Hey, this is fun. They have to bow down. And uh, you sometimes see, now nah, I'm okay with this. I understand it. And if you do this, please do forgive me. But you have to be very careful. In my opinion, it's just my opinion. But you know, I've been places where people stand when the, when the uh, preacher comes in. I understand that that's okay. It can be okay, but you have to be careful. I was walking down. And I hope I'm not offensive here, but I was at the PFW convention. And of course, they have the parade of the bishops. And they are all in white robes. I was the I was a guest there. The conference was in Indianapolis, a wonderful conference. I go to their conferences a lot. And my my mother and father were in the PFW, so that's my roots. And I have lots of friends. And I was privileged to speak at Bishop Golden's funeral. My roots go back to Christ Temple and to, uh, and to Grace. So I love those men. And, uh, but, you know, uh, I was at the conference and we're all, they're all in these white robes and this parade, you know, they're coming down and there's a lot of pageantry. And uh, one of the bishops, uh, as a matter of fact, the, now the reigning general superintendent, he said, Brother Mooney, he said, the thing I appreciate about the United, now we're going down the hallway here and here's Bishop Wagner. He hadn't been elected and he's, he was elected at this very conference as uh, general superintendent. And he was saying, the thing I like about the UPC is you don't have to do this. <laughs> and he said, you know, we've, we've gotten into this and can't get out of it. 
and it's not a good thing. And what he was trying to say, the pageantry has has become an obsessive thing. And to be a bishop, man, you get to do all this. See, that's what I'm talking about. You have to be very, very careful. And uh, so uh, that doesn't mean we shouldn't honor the minister. There's nothing wrong with honoring ministers. We should honor bishops and so forth and give honor. I believe you should honor your district superintendent and all your former ex-district superintendents, because I am one. I hope they honor district superintendents, you know, ex. So, you know, but it can't be the objective all right, let's go quickly to the next slide. Am I making any sense here? Uh, okay, so I would like to emphasize that abuse leads, if you abuse people, it eventually leads to hatred and to resentment. And I don't know that I have to talk about this very long, but you just, uh, uh, I had, uh, I want to be careful here, but uh, I had two people that I hung out with a lot that had an abusive father. And I would go to their house when I was a kid and spend the day and the dad would get drunk, you know, classic story. Holler, scream, fight, throw things. And I can remember those boys saying, someday I'm going to kill him. And I would say, Steve, you can't kill him. You can't kill your dad. Yeah, I'm going to kill him. He needs to die. And of course, that father also abused their mother and so forth, and the resentment in their hearts. And those boys are grown men today, of course. Both of them retired. Their dad's gone. Their mom's gone. But did you know they're left with a sense of bitterness that they've never gotten over? I just was with them. They both have nice little families. I was with them not too long ago, and they still resent their father. And we have, in my opinion, many, many churches where the control of people has become the obsession of some despot preacher and the whole objective of revival, the objective of getting things done, the objective of getting the work has been replaced by just controlling people and you have congregations that are filled with resentment. Now I have presided, I think at the last count, I presided in 64 church uh, situations through the years, 64. I've been an interventionist, 64 cases. And as an interventionist, churches split. I've seen churches on this side, church uh, people on this side. You've been in those, maybe seen those situations. And the level of resentment that I have seen in some of those situations is unbelievable. I mean, people that will call the police on one another, people that will scream and hate one another, violent outbreaks against the pastor because and it's shocking sometimes to see it but what you've got in some of those situations is long years of suppressed resentment and after a while it just springs up because people see people are there most people can add and subtract and they can think and you know they they they, they know they they provide you uh, a salary they know that you uh, are 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 in a sense, and I know we don't like this, but in a sense we're employed by the church. I don't feel employed by the church, but still in a sense I am employed by the church. I don't, I don't like to approach my work as a pastor from the standpoint of an employee. And I understand all the biblical authority stuff, and I believe in it, and I emphasize that. But in a sense you are, nevertheless, an employee of sorts. And, and if you don't believe that, then I promise you that people can get rid of you if they really want to. 
ain't nobody going to help me now. If nothing else, they don't come to church. Try that one. And you, uh, I've intervened in places where people stop paying their tithes and stop supporting the church, you know, and they can just, as we say, they starve the preacher out. So this, is, this kind of work requires wisdom, does it not? And I've seen when that would explode, that pastors would be so shocked to see that repressed resentment that is in people. And because they're not keeping the scorecard, they're not keeping things up to speed, they're not repairing the fences. So I... And I understand all the biblical authority stuff, and I believe it, and I emphasize that. But in a sense, you are, nevertheless, an employee of sorts. And, and if you don't believe that, then I promise you that people can get rid of you if they really want to. Ain't nobody going to help me now. If nothing else, they don't come to church. Try that one. And you, uh, I've intervened in places where people stop paying their tithes, stop supporting the church, you know, and they can just, as we say, they starve the preacher out. So this, is, this kind of work requires wisdom, does it not? And I've seen when that would explode, that pastors would be so shocked to see that repressed resentment that is in people. And because they're not keeping the scorecard, they're not keeping things up to speed, they're not repairing the fences. So I don't believe that, uh, that we can take this too lightly. This can happen. Abuse leads to hatred and resentment. Control mentality is not leadership mentality. If my objective is just to control people, I'm just trying to control people. Don't you get out of line. I can keep people in line for a while. Resentment's going to build up. Hatred's going to build up. There's a... I don't know why I'm thinking about this, but uh, Jim Jones, who took that group of people down in Ghana, and, and the myth is that he had them so psyched up that he got them to take uh, Kool-Aid. And, uh, th but it's a myth because most of them were forced. They were either going to drink the Kool-Aid or get shot and it was just a, a horrible situation. Well, of course that's extreme. I'm not trying to compare any of us to that situation, but the dynamics there are the same. What, what became important to uh, Jimmy Jones was control. I have one great story about Jimmy Jones. I love telling it because it. Uh, my father was a very deep man. He loved the things of God. And Jim Jones was an apostolic for many years. You may not know that. He pastored in Indianapolis, Indiana. And he was he led a group of people at one time into this uh, moment. We, we had those people around. Some of you won't recall this, but they believed you ought to just be baptized. I baptize you into Jesus. That's all you could say. You couldn't say, Lord Jesus Christ, just Jesus. And uh, he kind of fell off and went, of course, and then later became a disciple of Christ. But he, Jim Jones would come and visit my father. My father was very, he was a great Bible student, loved to sit. He sat all night with Bibles out on the table. Many preachers would come by our home and uh, talk to my dad. And he loved to talk to people. And Jim Jones was a frequent visitor at our home. And we had a big revival with Jim Jones when he was still apostolic. And uh, we had a big tent. And Jim Jones started preaching things that were off base. And my dad got up and set Jim Jones down and said, this will be the last night you will preach in this tent, sir. 
And so I'm looking back now, and my dad did not live long enough to see the end of Jim Jones' story, but I always like to tell people my dad set him down because he was taking, even in the early years, he was taking a, a, a compulsive kind of attitude toward power. And he began to, he pulled many apostolics into his church there in Indianapolis and later took to California and then took gone. So that's extreme. But control mentality is not leadership mentality. Can anybody receive this? Now, I, I, I don't know why I feel like interjecting this. I realize now, remember, we're on a touchy subject here. I'm not suggesting that anybody, you know, please don't take this personal, but we need to deal with these issues occasionally. I believe in apostolic authority. I believe you need to be in charge of your church, but you have to understand that you're dealing with people and there's human dynamics. And just because you're controlling people doesn't mean you're really leading people into revival. This is where it falls out right here. All real power is anchored, not just in control, but it's anchored in competence. The ability to lead. The ability to teach. A person has to have the ability to teach, the ability to preach. One, you cannot fake competence. Either you have it or you don't have it. And you need, if you don't have it, you need to get it. You can't, uh, a young a fellow from our church applied. He was pretty good. He was a mechanic. And Andy was a, 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 we loved him. He fixed our buses. He did everything. Andy comes into my office one day and says, I am going to go and learn how to fly or to fix jet airplanes. I want to be a jet airplane mechanic. I said, well, Andy, that's pretty good. He said, but I'm having trouble. He had not quite finished his high school education, but he was pretty sharp mechanically. And he applied for this aviation school that you have in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I don't know the name of it. Some of you may, what? It's a college, right? And it's for pretty high-tech people. And so he got into this college. And when he came and brought me his acceptance letter, I was stunned. I thought, well, Andy, I guess that's pretty good. Well, you better go. So he came out here to Oklahoma, and he uh, got into class, and we didn't hear from him for a long time. And one day the phone rang, and it was the president of that university in Tulsa, whatever it is, training school, technical school, the president. And he said, is this Reverend Moon? He said, well, do you know uh, Andy? And Mike gave his last name. I said, of course. He said, well... He said, I, uh, Andy talks about you a lot and how he, he's a good, good man. He's got the Holy Ghost, he says. I said, yeah, yeah, Andy's a spirit-filled boy. And he said, well, I said, uh, I got a problem with Andy. He said, I owe you an apology. I have no clue how Andy got into this school. He said, we had as one of our lectures the man who designed, for, for the most part, the 747. He was one of the central designers of certain components of the 747, the engines and so forth, and said Andy kept challenging this man about jet engines in one of the classes and kept saying, no, 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 no. And and, and so finally the, the, the engineer was so frustrated, he said, if you don't get Andy out of my class, I'm not going to teach anymore. This guy was like, he was trying to teach him about jet airplanes and Andy was interrupting and asking all kinds of stupid questions so they threw him out of school and he said I, I got a job for him over at Oral Roberts University as a janitor and, uh, but I'm going <laughs> to I have to say this school was a great school they gave us gave him back his $5,000 they got him a job at Oral Roberts University and uh, the guy said whatever I can do to make this up to you you know I'll send the kid home 
But Andy was just totally out of his element. He didn't have a clue. He didn't have a clue what he was talking about. And yet there he was trying to coach everybody, trying to give everybody a lesson. And you can't fake competence. You either have a level of competence or you don't. Andy didn't have it. He never was going to be an airplane mechanic. And so we have to understand that our leadership, the ability to communicate with other people properly, will depend a great deal on how competent you are. Let, let the man of God study to show himself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of God. You know what that's about? That's about competence. That's about being able to teach. So I believe that leadership is, uh, is grounded in uh, competence. Power is a duty. It demands hard work. Can I get a witness? Power demands sacrifice. Can I get a witness? If you think you're going to operate your church without having uh, things really nailed down in terms of uh, a willingness to work and a, a gift to, to give sacrificially to the work, you're never going to get very much done. So power is absolutely a duty. Power must have values. If you're going to get people to work with you, then your exercise of power has to have values. Without values, it's irresponsible. You, 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 you have to believe in something. Now, sometimes we pastors, we believe in something as long as it's applicable to other people. But when our own family gets on the scene, we change the rules. That's irresponsible. You know, you say, well, I don't want any of my kids playing basketball until your son grows to six foot seven and is being sought after at Oral Roberts University. <laughs> Just kidding. Then you say, well, you know, maybe I should change the rules. To exercise power, it has to have values. Otherwise, it becomes irresponsible. Personal opinion can obscure values. You can't just operate power willy-nilly. People want you to have a certain... Pastors need to bring to the table a certain commitment to values. You're communicating with people. You're trying to get people to follow you, to work with you. You have to be competent. You have to have a certain ability. You have to have a certain commitment to responsibilities. Otherwise, it's just all over the place. Well, I think I'll do this, and I think I'll do this. And, and, and then if you're not careful, you use your power. I don't like you sitting over here. Go over there, sit over there. You know. I'll tell you what, you're five minutes late. That's, you put an extra five dollars in the office. What kind of church is that? You know, it's just exercising power. Uh, I can, uh, am I, am I out of, are you going to set me down here? <laughs> I'm really getting a little too candid here, you know, but it's like, uh, I can remember this, <laughs> Brother Whalen, I see you're here. You know, most of these guys are probably a little too young to remember this, and I hope, I, I hope you're not his cousin or anything. I'm not going to mention it. You know what, I'm, I'm just coming, I'm already into this. I'm already into this. Uh, I can remember preaching when I was a young kid, and I'm going to tell you how I reacted to it. And I look, I, I believe he was a man of God. I believe he loved God. He had good family, blah, blah, all of that. But I believe in running the service, he got obsessed with power. And he would say, stand up. And I can remember thinking as a kid, stand up. And people would say, stand up. 
people stand up. Hello, are you still there? And I can remember thinking as a kid, if he comes over here, I'm gonna kill him. That's before I got the Holy Ghost. You know, have you ever kind of thought, oh my God, you know, this, have you ever seen it? It is like, I'm out of control. This thing's out of control. And you, you, you get very fearful of that because it's kind of the, you know, okay, so I have power to say to this young man, sit on the other side. What if he likes to sit on this side? I don't mess with where people sit. You know the way I feel about it? I'm just glad they're in my church sitting down. And if they want to sit down, some people say, I want my people to stand. I just want my people to be there. I'm just glad they're there. You know, you can get, you can use your power just for stupid stuff. Is that right? So it has to have a certain kind of uh, value to it. And a, 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 for me personally, I'm very, very careful before I exercise real pastoral authority. You know, I'm going to try to convince people that they need to do this or that. And there may be a point where I'm going to say, now I am going to to tell you to do this as your pastor and I'm going to take authority over you right now. I did that recently to someone in my office and said, I'm going to take pastoral authority over you right now. And they said, okay. I said, will you submit? Yes. Okay, you bring all your books and all your tax forms, you bring everything you've got and you turn it into a certified accountant to get it fixed. Now, there's times that you can cure things that way, using that, but you've got to be careful. And I've pastored this man for a long time. It's the first time I've ever taken authority over him. See, so I, would, I don't want anybody to walk out of here thinking that I believe that there's no such thing as pastoral authority. I'm not trying to get into that. But you have to exercise it with competence. It has to be, it has to be rooted in values. It has to have some objective to it. It just can't be this kind of willy-nilly. Well, I just think I'll see if I can get people to do cartwheels today. Hey, ain't this fun? Stand up, sit down, stick your hand out, talk to somebody, jump up and down, roll on the floor. Ain't that? I'm in control of this church. Your power, (laughs) your power better run deeper than that. All right, let's go to the next one. Power is transactional. It really is. And if you're going to exercise power, you must exercise it one transaction at a time. Now you can you can just totally mess up power by being inconsistent. So I'm working with this man, I exercise power, work with this man, exercise power. And uh, I see uh, uh, we have several people here that grew up at Calvary Tabernacle. I think uh, Brother Urshan, to his credit, knew how to exercise power. He knew how to touch people. He had a very, he wasn't a warm and fuzzy teddy bear kind of guy. Still isn't he, but he knows how to exercise power, how to touch people. And you could see him even today when he still walks in the church. I, I always learn something. He said, how you doing? Maddie, how you been? How's your son, Maddie? thinking about your son. Saw you there. See, that's pastoral power, transactional, one person at a time. 
Now, I know we'd like to control everything from the pulpit, but somewhere you come out of the pulpit and you talk to people, you touch people, and it's good when you know their names, you know something about them. You can't always, you can't always just be, you're totally intertwined with people at every level, but you can certainly have some measure of, of, uh, of uh, sensitivity toward people. That is about your power. So look at this right now. Power is transactional, one transaction at a time. It's not merely about position. It's not merely positional. It is uh, also not merely ceremonial. It's one transaction at a time. We have You have a great superintendent, and I think the neat thing about Brother Martin, most I think most superintendents would probably qualify for this. Most pastors would qualify this. But isn't it a wonderful thing you say, I feel like I can talk to Brother Martin. I feel like I can go talk to Brother Whalen. I feel like I can talk to my pastor. If people are saying that about you, then you are functioning really good using this power, exercising this power one transaction at a time in an atmosphere that makes it possible for you to get things done through people. So don't abuse your power. You got it. But get an objective behind it. I'm going to get some stuff done. Now, here's the beautiful thing. Uh, there, uh, Tip O'Neill was uh, a Democratic leader of the House for many, many years. Some of you might recall him. Very liberal in his thinking, but he was a very wonderful, uh, gentlemanly person. I had the privilege of meeting him on occasion. His snow-white hair, just a big, massive man, and you were drawn to him. He wrote a book, uh, and... Uh, uh, he said, the title of the book, and if you can find it, you can get it now and use bookstores for a dollar or so. And the title of the book is, it's a small, little small book. It's All Politics is Local. All Politics is Local. And he said something. He said the most powerful thing in the world, the most powerful thing in the world that you can do in your relationship with other people. Now, if you don't get, maybe this would be the one thing you could get today that would help you. I have used this and used it, used it, used it, and it works. He said the most powerful thing you can do, he said, and I, as a congressman, as a senator, he said, I've always exercised this. He said, if you hold the position, if you are in a position of power, you can go up to somebody and you can say the most powerful thing in the world, and here it is. Tip O'Neill said that in all of his years of asking people to help him, he's never had one person turn him down. As a pastor practicing that little technique, I've never had a person say, Pastor, I'm sorry, I cannot help you. I've had people say, I'm busy now. I'm getting ready to do this. I'm involved in this big project in my company. But as soon as I get finished with that, if you can wait, I'll, I'll be happy to jump on. Now, you can't abuse that either. But it's a powerful thing to go up to somebody, a young man or a couple, and just shake their hand and say, I got this thing going right now. I'm just overwhelmed. Can you help me? Yeah. I said, good. Let's have breakfast tomorrow at 8 o'clock. That, ladies and gentlemen, is using power to get things done through people. All right. Let's take a little break. And uh, I don't know uh, how you want to do this, but can they take five or something? Are you? Yeah, five minutes or so. Uh, so let's just take a little break and then I'll be back and then I'll bore you for another hour or so.